August to you. And would you please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you are new with us, here's your study tip for the day. Uh, A Bible open for the duration of our study will be to your benefit, especially on this passage in particular. And so if you don't have your Bible with you and you want to save some battery on your phone, there's a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Open that up. We're in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Chapter 6 is the large number 6. You'll find that in there. And uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8 today. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. A proper diagnosis is vitally important when things are going haywire. If you get the diagnosis wrong, you, you might just get the cure wrong as well. So, for example, if your car is out of gas but you think it needs air in the tires, you're not going to get very far. If you're unable to use your arm because an alligator is chewing on it and you think, I need more calcium in my diet, you've diagnosed improperly. The cure is not going to work either. So a proper diagnosis is very important. In the early 1900s, an English paper asked readers to submit answers to a diagnosis question And the question asked of the readers was this, what is wrong with the world? Uh, The famous writer G.K. Chesterton famously answered in reply with just two words, I am. In answering that way, what Chesterton was saying was that he shared in responsibility with all of humanity the problems in the world around us. That is an accurate diagnosis that has remained with humanity since Genesis chapter 3. And I wonder how you might answer that very same question. What's wrong with the world? It'd be commonplace to point fingers at our ideological enemies, our political enemies, our moral enemies, our national enemies. It would be understandable to point fingers at people who do evil against others. And there are truly evil people in this world But what's less common is a true understanding of the total pervasive nature of our own sin and its impact on our world and our lives. If our diagnosis of things is, I'm okay, but the rest of the world is messed up, well, then we're living with a diagnosis that is other than what the Bible gives us. It's vitally important that we have clarity on the impact of our sin in our world And beyond that, it's vital that we understand God's solution. If our sin is the diagnosis, God has the cure. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, there is a clear message. That clear message is this, sin corrupts everything, but God is setting it right. This passage should not create confusion, but it should create confidence in the compassion and forgiveness of our God. So my goal today is for you to confront your sin with God's incredible, powerful compassion and forgiveness. Follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. 
Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. It preaches itself. All right, let's wrap it up and go home. That was perfect. Great. What a terrific morning we've had together. Uh, This is a passage that comes with a lot of questions, uh, perhaps some squiggly eyebrows, but there is a clear message in here. There is a diagnosis and a cure. That's what we want to focus our attention on this morning. Uh, What does this story give us in the way of diagnosis? First and foremost, the diagnosis is this, is that people are totally corrupted by their sin. When we look at humanity, when we look in the mirror, what is the diagnosis? People are totally corrupted by their sin. We see this illustrated in the story through the corruption of marriage, the utter corruption of culture, as well as God's pronouncements uh, of regret in his plan to judge mankind. The diagnosis is very clear. Now, when you read this passage, there are two major questions that jump out to you as the reader. The first question is this, who are the sons of God and daughters of man? What do we do with that? The second question is, who are the Nephilim? How do we make sense of that? So as much as you can, I want you to track with me for the next little bit because there's not consensus on how to answer these questions. Uh, In fact, I want to give you this morning two options for how to answer the sons of God question and two options for how to answer the Nephilim question. And you can choose your own adventure and we still will... Uh, trust the authority of God's word, and whatever option you choose, we're going to still land at the same conclusion on the other side of it, all right? So doing my best to give this just as clearly as possible, follow along with me. What do we do first and foremost with sons of God, daughters of men? The first option is this. You might conclude that the sons of God are those men from the godly lineage of Seth, And the daughters of mankind are those uh, women from the unrighteous lineage of Cain. How would someone land at this conclusion? Context is king. And if you remember back in chapter 4, chapter 4, we read of the lineage of Cain. And you'll remember that Cain and all of his descendants, they have every worldly success, but they were utter spiritual failures. This is an unrighteous lineage in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 5, last week, we looked at the godly line of Seth, which is characterized by this phrase, they walked with God. So chapter 4, unrighteousness. Chapter 5, righteousness. Chapter 6, righteousness seems to marry unrighteousness. And there's a solid argument for that. There are popular writers and preachers who land right here, and uh, they, they 
they, uh, they would support their argument in this very same way that I've given you this morning. So what we have described here could be the intermarriage of unrighteousness and righteousness. That's a problem that plagues God's people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. If this is where you land, if you say, this is how I make sense of sons of God, daughters of men, then the, the question of the Nephilim is already answered for you as well. So your first option for who the Nephilim are is to just say, well, they are tall, violent humans. We run into the Nephilim later in Numbers chapter 13. Moses sends a group of spies into the promised land to scope it out. And they come back and give their report with eyes filled with terror. And they say the land devours everyone who goes in there. The Nephilim are there. And we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. They are giant and they are uh, terrifying. They are violent people. The story, Genesis 6, never directly says the Nephilim are the offspring of sons of God and daughters of mankind. Therefore, in this understanding, the Nephilim are simply giant, violent human beings. Option number two, sons of God and daughters of men, goes this way. Option number two says the sons of God are angels who have rejected God and the daughters of mankind are human women. And so what we have described here is, the inter, this is a demonic intermarriage between rebellious angels and human women. How would we land at this conclusion? There are three reasons from Scripture that someone might choose this option as a way to understand Genesis 6. The first reason from Scripture is this. If you look at all the places where the exact phrase son of God or sons of God are used in the Old Testament, every time it's used, it's a reference to angelic beings. It is never a reference to humans. We have two of those references here in Genesis 6. There are three in the book of Job. There is one in the book of Daniel. Think about the book of Daniel, chapter 3, for a moment. This might be the most familiar of these passages. Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. He sees a fourth man in the fire. And do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? He said, I see a fourth man in the fire who looks like a son of God. It's the exact same phrase, Daniel chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6. Everywhere that phrase is used in the Old Testament, everywhere it explicitly refers to angelic beings, never to humans. There's a second argument from Scripture that would support this uh, conclusion, and it comes from 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is writing to a church that is under attack by false teachers. And at this point in his letter, he's encouraging them that God uh, has a track record of delivering his people from intensely evil situations. And if he did it back then, he's going to do it again now. And in order to support his argument, he points out two Old Testament examples where God's people found themselves enmeshed in evil, surrounded by evil, and God brought them out of it. I want to show you on the screen from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, the argument that Peter uses. And in this, you'll find Genesis chapter 6. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 uh, 
For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, that's the evil surrounding God's people. Next comes the deliverance. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. So that's example one, evil, and then deliverance. And then he gives another one. The second evil example is Sodom and Gomorrah. The deliverance is Lot and his family. The conclusion in verse 9, well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So that first example of evil and deliverance, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 refers to angels who sinned and were cast into hell awaiting judgment. And then verse 5 describes God's deliverance of Noah from the world corrupted by evil. The big question is this. Where is verse 4 in the Old Testament? Where does that take place where angels rebel and then God judges them and holds them in chains for a future judgment as well? Where does that happen? You might say, well, that's where Satan falls from heaven and all the angels that follow him fall as well. That, I mean, that could be. That's a thing. However, in Peter's examples, the evil is directly tied to the deliverance that follows. Sodom and Gomorrah is followed by Lot's deliverance. Lot was delivered from the evil in Sodom and Gomorrah. What evil angelic rebellion was Noah delivered from? Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God married daughters of men and they had offspring together. That's the second biblical support for this argument. There's a third one, a third support for this conclusion. It comes from Jude verse 6. Chapter 1 verse 6. Here's where you would push back. You'd say, okay, Cody, all this Sounds okay so far, but here's what you're forgetting. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30 says that in the resurrection, uh, we'll be like angels who never marry, nor are they given into marriage. So, boom, there's this argument just shot down altogether. You're correct that Matthew 22 says this. Angels in heaven in the resurrection never marry, nor are they given in marriage. But Jude chapter 1 verse 6 gives us a different look at this as well. Jude 6 speaks of the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling. God, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for judgment on the great day of those angels. So what Jude says is that, yeah, you're right. There are angels that in heaven they will never marry nor given in marriage, but there are angels who have given up their heavenly position. They have rebelled against God. And where would Jude find that in the Old Testament? He would find it here in Genesis chapter 6. When Peter read Genesis chapter 6 and when Jude read Genesis chapter 6, they understood this to be a description of angels leaving their heavenly position and authority and marrying human women and having offspring with them. Now, if you land on this option, you with me still so far? Are we okay? Do we need to take a break, get a Snickers, come back? I think we're okay. If you choose option two for making sense of the sons of God, the angels of men, or the, the daughters of men, then you have also two more options to choose from when it comes to making sense of the Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? Well, the first option, and one that's super popular, is that the Nephilim are the subhuman offspring of these demons and humans. That is a narrative that has existed in the church for almost as long as we've had a, a bound Bible. 
uh, and it doesn't necessarily come from Scripture, but from outside writings. But still, you will find many faithful Bible preachers and writers who will land right here and they'll say, no, the, the Nephilim are the demonic offspring. That's why they're so big and, and so violent. But you've got another option as well. You can take the option, the very first option, and say, no, the Nephilim are simply tall, violent warriors. The passage never tells us that they are the offspring. It just says they were on the earth when all this happened. It's almost like they are a time stamp. The Nephilim were on the earth, and oh yeah, by the way, you've got angels abdicating their positions in heaven and uh, entering these demonic intermarriages with human women. Uh, that's all that we're told about the Nephilim. All right, I've given you the options. And now you've got to choose. You've got to make a decision, all right? Uh, I'll give you a nice little summary screen here so you can see the options before you. I should have just done three options, but I don't know why 2A and 2B sounded good at the time. That's just what you get. But option one, this could be unrighteous intermarriage, and the Nephilim are just tall, violent people. Option 2A, it's demonic intermarriage, and the Nephilim are demonic offspring. Uh, option 2B, this is demonic intermarriage, and the Nephilim are tall, violent warriors. What you picking? Now, here's what you got to know. This, uh, we are free to have disagreement on this and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to get to the end together, and it's okay. All right? So it doesn't matter where you land here on these options, we're still going to be people who follow Jesus Christ. This is not a dividing. You don't have first church of the Nephilim and second church of the sons of God, okay? That's not how this works. Here's where I land. I'm, a, I'm an option two beer all the way. I used to be an option one just because there's something in me naturally. I, I sort of shy away from understandings of Scripture that seem just too fantastic, way too over-spiritualized, and that's, uh, I think that's more of a reaction to part of uh, some of my religious upbringing. But the more time I've spent uh, with Scripture on this subject, I'm convinced by Peter and I'm convinced by Jude that what we have described here is this horrific rebellion that takes place in heaven. I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it, but somehow... These angels in heaven rebel against God. They leave their heavenly position. And through some mechanism, they either become human or they possess humans. And they take up with human women and they create offspring. And the whole thing is demonic and horrible. The Nephilim, the Nephilim are not half divine, half human hybrids. I, I reject that strongly uh, because the passage doesn't tell us that. It just tells us they were there. They're tall, they're violent, they're present, that's it. Now, whether you are option 1 or 2A or 2B, what matters is what's the conclusion of things. When we look at this scene, what are we to understand about the nature of things? What diagnosis is given to this kind of world described in Genesis chapter 6? And God gives us the conclusion of things in verse 3, simple little line, God said, they are corrupt. 
Whatever's described in verse 2 is a depiction of how utterly corrupt marriage has become. It looks nothing like what God intended. We start with Adam and Eve, two becoming one, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We then skip forward Genesis chapter 4 to Lamech and his two wives. Now we get to chapter 6, and we've got sons of God marrying daughters of men in this unholy union. It is utterly perverse. Whatever it is, it is corrupted. And marriage in that day, just like now, was not just an isolated affair. It's a community affair. These things happen with the support and the celebration of families and communities. So not only is marriage corrupt, but the whole community is corrupted by sin. And what's more than that, let me ask you this. Who are the famous people? in Genesis chapter 6 in those days. Who are the people that get the posters? Who are the influencers? Who are the people that get the songs and the stories that live on? Who are the people who are celebrated? It's the Nephilim. These people, this tribe of people who are taller than average and they are horrifically violent. Murderers are the heroes of the culture. The entire culture is corrupt. And so God's diagnosis on the whole situation is laid out in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Whether you're option one or two, the conclusion is the same. The diagnosis is this place. These people are utterly corrupted by their sin. And as sin was in the days of Noah, so it is today. There is nothing in our lives, there is no place in our world that is not impacted by the spread and ruin of sin. Sin corrupts our thoughts and our words and our actions. Every relationship in your life is complicated by sin. Marriage is hard because two sinners are trying to become one flesh. Parenting is hard because sinful people raise sinful kids. Our own bodies are decaying under the weight of sin. The sin of Adam and Eve has created an environment where we become sick and we die. We will all have a funeral because of sin. Even our emotions and our minds are impacted by sin. Mental health challenges are ravaging precious people in our church, more people than you can imagine. Sin is the diagnosis. That, don't misunderstand me here. I want to be just perfectly clear. I'm not saying there's a one-to-one -one correlation between your sin and the hardship that you suffer, as if the, the reason you're sick is because you lied to your boss. That's not what I'm saying. The lesson from Genesis 6 is that every part of our existence, every person in existence is corrupted by sin. We read it at the beginning of our service. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. It's a grim diagnosis. But there's a cure, and it's right here in the passage as well. And what's the cure for a people totally corrupted by sin? The cure is this. God is totally redeeming his sinful people. God is totally redeeming his sinful people. So in our passage here, God responds negatively twice to the sin of mankind. 
Anytime you're studying a passage, if there's divine speech, that's a place you want to put your attention. So God speaks twice, and then we get this third declaration about God. So his first negative response is in verse 3. God says in response to what he's seen in the corruption of mankind, he says, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. So God chose to shorten the lifespan of humans so as to shorten the days that we can produce evil. And God's second negative response comes in verses 5 through 7. We just read verse 5, which tells us the Lord saw human wickedness. Verse 6 tells us he was deeply grieved by it. And this language is sadly reminiscent of the creation account. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, there's this familiar refrain that shows up over and over at the end of almost every day of creation. The refrain is this, and the Lord saw that it was good. In chapter 6, God sees his creation. And what's his conclusion? The Lord saw and he was grieved. How does God feel about sin? Sin grieves God. And just as God's ability to love is infinitely greater than our ability to love, I believe so too his ability to grieve sin is infinitely greater than our ability to grieve sin. God grieves our sin. Seeing that mankind is utterly corrupted by sin, God then makes another declaration. His second response is this in verse 7. He says, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. So first, God shortens humans' years. Next, God chooses to decreate all that he created. Why do I say decreate? Well, I want you to notice the order in which God identifies the things that he's going to wipe from the face of the earth. It goes humans, and then animals, and then creatures that crawl, and then birds. So here we are moving in reverse order of the way in which these things were created. If you remember in the creation account, day five, we have birds created, and then creatures that crawl. Day six, animals are created, and then humans are the last thing put on earth. But here in chapter 6, God has reversed the order in order to decreate these things. He will wipe them from the earth. He's emptying the earth of the evil that's present in it. Knowing what you know of mankind's rejection of God, the horrors it produced, here's the question to you. Would God, who is the holy uncreated creator be within his right to wipe out mankind? Is it within God's right as the creator, as the God of all things, and the one who his creation has rebelled against, does he have the right to just end everything? Let this be the end of the story. The Bible is just Genesis 1 through 6, and that's it. Does he have the right to do that? Absolutely, he has the right to do it. It could be the end for humanity, and God would be justified in doing so. Even with our finite understandings of justice and holiness, surely we can see that God the Creator has the right to end his creation because of its rebellion against him. But, 
Verse 8. Don't forget verse 8. Look at it with me. you got to see this with your own eyes. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. There's our cure. That little line is all we need to know that sin will not prevail and that God is going to set things right. The fact that God found favor with Noah is not simply good news for Noah. It is good news for all of us here today because it means that God is going to keep his promise to crush the serpent who has brought sin into the world in the first place and to deliver his people from sin and its curse once and for all. If I were to ask you, what gets all the press in this passage? Diagnosis or cure? Well, we'd say diagnosis. We've got seven verses of sin, 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 just heavy darkness. And we just got this one little verse, this mustard seed type verse in verse 8 that God found favor with Noah. But that little verse has all the power in this passage. It has the power to reverse all of the damage that sin has done and to rescue people who are under its curse. It's going to take sinful people and forgive them, dead people and give them eternal life. Verse 8 is where all the power is in this passage. It's shocking that in a period of time that people rebelled so completely against God that he showed mercy and began this new work through Noah. And God's ability to bring beauty out of these ashes continues today. The same hope of compassion and forgiveness belongs to you, sinner that you are. The clear story of Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is that God is so compassionate and so faithful and so powerful that he will rescue us from all our sin. And we know this, that our rescue comes through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. That verse 8 just speaks of a future comfort, a future hope. You and I see that in the past because we've seen the coming of Christ, God in the flesh. And we've seen his redeeming death. And we've seen his resurrection by which we know all that he said is true. We've seen this hope in flesh in Jesus Christ. So when you read 6, 1 through 8, you have to understand that your sin is not too great for God. Your sin does not put you beyond his ability nor his desire to rescue and forgive. Genesis 6-8 tells us that God had favor on Noah. John 3-16 tells us God loves you. So God restores lives that have been broken by sin. So there's hope for you today by walking with Jesus. There's hope for your marriage. And there's hope for your family. There's help and freedom from addiction. And in the midst of mental health crises, there is a compassionate God who grieves the challenges you are facing and he loves you and he has provided for you therapists and doctors and medicine and counsel and a church family who will walk with you all the way through this. He's a God of hope and life and forgiveness and fresh starts. And for my money, Genesis 6, 8 is one of the most incredible verses in the entire Old Testament because it explodes with hope and 
faith and love from God for us. That's the cure. This strange little passage gives us a diagnosis and it gives us a cure. The diagnosis, everyone is corrupted by sin. The cure, God is redeeming us from it all. You know, so many people in this world uh, think this way. God loves me because I have sinned so little. But followers of Jesus think this way. God loves me although my sin is great. We don't want to get this diagnosis wrong. If we just think of ourselves in terms of amount of sin that we ourselves judge ourselves to have committed, as if I've committed a little sin compared to someone who's committed great sin, diagnosis is very wrong. It's like saying, I've only drank a little poison. Little poison, big poison, it's going to have disastrous effects. Our diagnosis is clear. But the cure is beautiful, and we find our hope and our forgiveness in Christ. So what do we do with this passage? I, th I think we finish verse 8, and then we hit our knees in confession and repentance and rest once again in the compassion and forgiveness of our God. Those first seven verses aren't just about other people. It's, it's about us. And the compassion and forgiveness of verse 8 is compassion and forgiveness for us. And so I wonder if today's a day when you, Christian, you need to come to the Lord with all of your sin. The sin that you are so ashamed of you can't tell anyone. The sin that you don't want to admit. Uh, the sin that has tripped you up for a very long time. All of that. I wonder if today's the day that in light of what we've read and the cure we've seen that you come to God once again in confession and repentance and rest in the cure that he has for you in Christ. I want to encourage you to do that today. I want you to be specific with your sin. I, I, I don't want you to pray a lazy confession, God forgive me for all my sin. I mean, there might be something sincere in that, but let's be specific about our lie, our slander, uh, our pride and arrogance about all the ways we have not loved the Lord with all that we are and all the ways we have not loved our neighbor as ourself, all of our indifference to the things of God, the apathy about spiritual matters in our lives. Let us come clearly with our confession and there find the cure once again, God's hope and rest and love. When you come to him in this way, you bring your sin to the cross once again you're going to hear the voice of God from his word reply to you, forgiven, redeemed, saved, restored, strengthened, all things new. It's a day for a fresh start. Maybe you start before you leave this room this morning. Here in a little bit, we'll sing a song. People will begin to walk out and talk. You're not mandated to have to do that. You may want to just stay right here and pray for a while, spend some time with the Word, spend some time in quiet prayer. You've got the freedom to do that. Or maybe grab one of the pastors or grab a dear Christian friend and let someone join you in this prayer as you set your heart on the things of God again. What if you're not a follower of Jesus? How does this passage impact you? Well, I wonder, did you know the extent of your sin? 
did you note how utterly pervasive it is and how it impacts every aspect of your life? And did you understand just how great and profound God's love for you is? The point of this passage is not to just make us feel guilty and make us feel horrible. If it stopped at verse 7, that might be the case. But verse 8 has this hope and this encouragement for us that God loves us and he's made a way for us. Here's the way he's made. Although we've sinned against him and our sin is great and our sin is deadly and it deserves judgment, here's what God the Father has done. He sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human, and he died on the cross in your place for your sins. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice of God for your sin. And because he loves you, he took the punishment for your sin on himself at the cross. He really died there. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And he loves you and he promises that if you will turn your life to him, he'll forgive you and save you, give you eternal life. If you'll turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and make Jesus the Lord of your life, you'll meet with his compassion and forgiveness forever. And so if this is your day to give your life to Jesus Christ, I, I want you to hang around after the service and grab me, one of the pastors, maybe a Christian friend that you've come here with, and, and let's settle your eternity before you walk off this property. If God's calling, now's the time to say yes. Or maybe you just want to start or continue a conversation in these things, and maybe that comes in the week ahead. I'm easily available by calling the church office, or maybe you know someone you want to talk to about these things. Don't let it just happen by chance. Be intentional about your soul and about the cure that awaits you. And when you say yes to Jesus Christ, you will know what it means once and for all to experience the favor of God. Let's pray together. I want to pray from Psalm 36. Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream. For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. Spread your faithful love over those who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.